ทัสสะบะโกวะโทอะระหะโทอะสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนะโมทัสสะบะโกวะโทอะระหะโทอะสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังธัมมังสังฆังนามสาม
misperceptions. It's not we haven't got the right perspective. And the, the Buddha wanted to, us to see the things in the right perspective. Wanted to show us how, how to see things in the, in the right perspective. And not just so that we're right, but, but so we, we can learn to to stop creating so much suffering, adding suffering to, to our lives. It's out of compassion for us. He wanted to show us was the path to seeing things clearly. And the um, <clears throat> this path that, that he taught, taught us to how to see things clearly, how to see that our action, there aren't any giant squirrels out there. There's no miniature cows. And the way to get the right perspective on our experience of the world, our experience of ourselves, and our experience of the world is what he called uh, the middle way. And the, um, I think a good way to understand what, what he meant by that, what he meant by the middle way, is to just reflect on how he discovered it. He, he didn't claim to have invented it, he claimed to have invented, to, to have discovered this way. And if we reflect a bit on, on that story, how he discovered this middle way. To start with, he, his, his life, the first 29 years or, or, or so of his life, he had quite a privileged background, sort of aristocratic background in an, in an oligarchy. His family was part of the oligarchy that, that uh, ruled this republic in, in, in Rota. And in, in the story, he had quite a, <clears throat> a kind of hedonistic life, play, almost a kind of playboy existence, he, he pursued pleasure. And he, uh, having pursued pleasure for 29 years or so, he, he, he realized, found that this didn't work, it didn't lead to genuine satisfaction. So then he decided to pursue the spiritual path, which at the time, well, one of the spiritual paths was the pursuit of pain. and. Uh, to the modern mind, the pursuit of pain, that, that seems a bit strange or counterintuitive. Why would somebody pursue pain in order to become happy? So it's a, but the, I think the thinking at the time, and still in, in India these, t these days, the Jains follow this system. There's, there's the idea that uh, in order to liberate the mind from the body, you need to inflict pain and, and uh, self-torture on the body. And there's also a theory that karma is almost a kind of physical thing. And in order to burn off all your, your karma, your bad karma, you need to burn it off with self-mortification, inflicting pain on the body. So the Buddha followed this for some years. This, and he pushed it right to the edge. And uh, again, found that this path, the path of pursuing pain, painful feeling, this didn't lead to happiness, didn't lead to fulfillment. So he gave that up and, and his uh, disciples got disillusioned and uh, abandoned him because he was slacking and breaking his fast, starting to eat. And the, <clears throat> and the Buddha found that actually that there is a third way, there's, there's a middle way, which is the pursuit of feelings which, uh, which are neither pleasant nor painful. And the way that came to him is that he, as he was uh, sit sitting under the, under the Bodhi tree, he remembered when he was a young child, I think seven or eight, 
could remember watching his father doing some ploughing and his mind quite naturally started to watch the, the breathing. He started to do mindfulness of breathing just spontaneously. Watching the neutral feelings in the body, the body, the feelings that are of breathing, which are neither pleasant nor painful, which then in time became pleasant feelings, pleasant feelings of, that come from mindfulness of, the, of the breathing. And then what came to him was for, what was for him was an important step or insight was that as a, as, as an ascetic, he'd consciously avoided any kind of, of pleasant feeling. And his realization was there are some pleasant feelings, or non-sensual pleasant feelings, that it's, it's okay to experience. And not only that, it's, his realization was that this should be pursued. These, these neutral feelings, the breathing, and feelings of the, in, the, in the body, should be pursued. This pursuit was uh, the way forward. <clears throat> Now these um, neutral feelings in, in, in the body of breathing, they're uh, feelings that during the course of an average day, if, you, if you're not a meditator, most people wouldn't even notice them. Most people might go through days and weeks and months without really paying any attention to, to the physical sensation of breathing. And uh, the tendency, according to the Buddha, there's a deep underlying tendency from, from this lifetime, from many, many lifetimes, that we relate to pleasure through desire. So our mind moves towards desire, deep underlying tendency to, sorry, to move towards pleasant feeling. So a deep underlying tendency of desire to move towards pleasant feeling. And then painful feeling, we have a deep underlying tendency to avoid that deep underlying tendency of aversion to, towards painful feeling. And as our mo mind moves away from painful feeling towards pleasant feeling, we ignore, we don't notice the neutral feeling. We, we develop over this lifetime and many, many, many lifetimes, we develop a deep underlying tendency to ignore neutral feelings, feelings that are neither pleasant nor painful. And, the, uh, <clears throat> and this was two and a half thousand years ago in the time of the Buddha before television, computer, smartphones and so on. To the modern mind we've, we've got an even stronger tendency towards ignoring these neutral feelings. We've got so many technological avenues for distraction that uh, those of us have grown up with televisions, now it's smartphones, computers and so on. We have a much stronger tendency to ignore the neutral feelings. So in, uh, <clears throat> in our practice, to, to stay with, to bring our minds, when we sit to meditate, and we bring our minds to the, to the body, sensations in the body, feeling of breathing. It takes, it's hard work, it takes us some time to develop a sensitivity to, to feel that, those neutral feelings. It takes a long time. Also, it takes a, an interest we have to develop and int get interested in these. What to start with are quite subtle, neutral feelings, and uh, and to start to not to give up just because it might feel like there's nothing happening there. 
to not give up to actually start to take an interest, to look into it. Even experiment with different breathing patterns. It's kind of uh, deep breathing, shallow breathing, fast breathing, slow breathing, all sorts of different patterns of breathing that we can experiment with to bring a, a sense of energy and alertness in, into the body and a sense of interest for this uh, this neutral feeling, this feeling that's neither pleasant nor, nor unpleasant, the feeling of breathing in the body, in the whole body. And if we stay with that long enough, then we will find that the awareness gradually expands, gets broader, and we start to feel the whole body. It's a sort of whole body feeling awareness. And the, um, <clears throat> to help us with that, the, uh, the Buddha taught the, the, the Eightfold Path, which has all sorts of advice on all different aspects of life. For instance, as in the right speech, right action, right, right livelihood. That's the whole area of work and relationships in our life. And the whole of his teaching is helping us to become more sensitive to this the neutral feeling in the, in the body, the neutral feeling of breathing, the neutral feeling of the whole body. And then during our everyday life, when we're walking about, sitting, standing, lying down, or doing all the ordinary activities of the day, getting up, getting dressed, washing, going to the toilet, eating, these ordinary physical activities, brushing our teeth, waiting for a bus, all these activities, we keep remembering to come back to, to, to the body, come back to the, the physical sensations in the body, come back to the posture that we're in, come back to the sense of movement as we're moving around. And by constantly practicing like this over and over again, we get distracted, then we come back, we get distracted, then we come back. By doing this over and over again, we strengthen this muscle of, of mindfulness. And then when we come to sit and, and meditate, there's a, a momentum behind us, a momentum of mindfulness of the body helps move us into the, into the meditation and helps strengthen our, our mindfulness, strengthen our ability to, to be with the, these physical sensations in, in the body that aren't especially painful, they're not especially pleasant, so that we're able to be with them <coughs> more consistently over the longer periods of five minutes, ten minutes, quarter of an hour, thirty minutes, an hour. And if we stay with them long enough, then we'll find that the the uh, mind relaxes, calms down, expands. We have this sense of a whole body awareness, whole body feeling awareness. And we might have a sense of the, the energy in the body, the sense of energy moving in the body or tingling. It's, it's almost as if the, the breath energy isn't just in the lungs, it's spread out through the whole body. And we can use this perception of it's as if we're breathing in and out through the whole body, not just through the nose, as if the body is like a sponge. And um, <clears throat> this is it's actually hard work, and it's especially hard work for our generation. We are, we're much more distracted, I think, than, say, people a hundred years ago. And uh, the, There is a shortcut. You might always, I was 
talking to, to some of you down in the Crystal House earlier. And uh, the good news is there is a shortcut. <laughs> and that's, so you, if, if you um, practice, say, metta, or mudita, the divine abidings, metta and mudita, they're very pleasant feelings. So the, the, you can find the mind will, because it, you're experiencing a pleasant feeling sooner, your mind will settle down sooner and calm down sooner. But the disadvantage is because it happens sooner, then the state of calm and settlement that you go into isn't, isn't quite as strong, but it's, it's uh, kind of e easier. And the, the normal way that metta and mudita are, are, are taught is um, you're using thoughts, thought constructs, ideas, images. So there's the, the thought, may I be happy? The thought, may you be happy towards a good friend? The thought, may all beings be happy? You might be using images as well. And that's the kind of a preliminary stage of the practice. And then the way the, way the Buddha taught it was, you, you might have heard us in the, the morning, we do a morning reflection on, on the suffusion of the divine abiding. So it's, Meta sahagate na cheta sae kangdisang paritava viharati tata dutiyan tata tatiyan tata tatutang. And in that, the way the Buddha taught metta was a, as a suffusion, as a radiance. So you're radiating metta to the first quarter, which is, say, the front of you, second quarter, out to one side, third quarter, behind you, fourth quarter, out to the other side, upwards and, and downwards. It's, it's a radiance. And the, um, <clears throat> the way to develop that practice, a step from the preliminary stage when, when you're using thoughts and images, to develop metta or, or mudita, the way to step to the, the, the stage of radiance is this mindfulness of breathing. If you practiced mindfulness of breathing and learned how to, to use the perception of the, the whole body breathing in and out through the whole body like a sponge rather than just at the nose, and you can use that as a step to, towards this whole body radiance, radiating metta, using the, the in and the out breath as a vehicle for that. And then that, <clears throat> that practicing metta as a radiance, and you can drop a lot of the, the thinking and thought constructs, and, you know, just with the, uh, the, the intention, may all beings be well, and the, the feeling of radiance, sense of radiance. <clears throat> and when, when the mind's calmed down like, like that, either through mindfulness of breathing or, or developing metta and medita, then that's an ideal moment to, to develop investigation. You can investigate the, the experience that we have, you know, the, the, the six senses that we have, or what the Buddha, the Buddha taught the five khandhas as well. There's different ways of um, slicing the cake. And the, um, <clears throat> this investigation and, and also it's it's, uh, it's helpful to do when the mind's calm like that but also after you've got up from meditation and you're, you're walking around doing things you can can also investigate um, when we're just walking down the street to doing anything we can we can apply this in investigation in, into our actual experience and the it's important I think to remember that when when the Buddha was teaching the Dhamma well, say, for instance, he divided our experience up into the five candors, and the first one is the body. So when he was talking about that, he wasn't talking about some kind of external um, 
physical body. What he was talking about was, was our direct experience of the body, a direct experience of the phenomena of the body. That's, that's what he was pointing to. And he came up with the image of the, the body as being like a, a lump of foam. He was At the time, he was on, on, on the bank of the Ganges. And he said if somebody was sitting on the bank of the Ganges, watching a lump of foam going past on the river, then that, that person could investigate and ponder this lump of foam and see that it's insubstantial, empty and hollow. And in the same way, we, we apply that investigation, that pondering, that, in, uh, that considering consideration of our own experience of the body, our direct experience of, of the body, and we can see how that's, that's insubstantial, it's hollow, it's empty. And then we can in investigate the feelings. And the image that the Buddha gave for feelings was of uh, when, when it rains on the surface of the water, you get each raindrop produces a little bubble. And uh, this, this was the Buddha's image for, for feelings. And he was saying if, if, if you were to, to ponder and look at these little bubbles that come up when it's raining on, on the surface of the water, you'd see that they're insubstantial, hollow, and empty, and then in the same way, when you consider that the feelings that come up in the body, painful, pleasant, neutral feelings, then you see that those two are insubstantial, they're hollow, they're empty. And then perception, <coughs> the Buddha came up with the image of perception, it's like a mirage, which, I mean, of course, in the Buddha's day, he didn't have computers and televisions and cinemas and so on, so... The, uh, the nearest image would be like a, a mirage, which is like like a, an image hovering on the horizon. And in the same way that, let's say, that our perception of this carpet, for instance, this carpet, our perception of this carpet is, is hanging in the space of awareness. And the same way that somebody looking at an image would ponder and consider that mirage and see that it's an insubstantial, hollow and empty. In the same way, we can... We can contemplate, consider our perceptual world, different perceptions, and see that these perceptions are, are the same as a mirage, they're insubstantial, hollow and empty. And then the next the next category is um, um, sankharas, which is translated in, in uh, different ways, formations, fabrications, mental constructions, so it's about thinking and emotions, that kind of thing. And the, the image that the Buddha gave for these is, is that they're like a plantain tree, banana tree. And the uh, <clears throat> normally, when you cut into a, a normal tree, it gets harder as you, as you get in towards the center and right in the middle, the heartwood is, is very hard. Whereas a banana tree, a plantain tree, is, is the opposite. It's, it's hollow on the middle. As you cut into it, it be, it's completely hollow in the middle. And the tree is actually just composed of kind of leaves on the outside. So um, he pointed out that the same way that somebody might contemplate a banana tree and see that it's insubstantial, hollow and empty. In the same way you, you contemplate, consider, investigate your, your thinking and your emotions. And you see how that's insubstantial, hollow and, and empty. And then the last one, the fifth kanda, the fifth, uh, the fifth category is, is consciousness, consciousness itself. And the, the uh, Buddha pointed out that the image he used for consciousness is of a, a magical 
trick. A bit like I was talking about with the squirrel and the cow. It's, it's a magical trick. And if you, if you look into it, ponder it, investigate it, then you see, uh, you see if, you, if you're pondering a magical trick, you'll see how it's, it's insubstantial, hollow, it's empty. And in the same way, if you contemplate consciousness, sense consciousness, then you see that that too is insubstantial, hollow and, and empty. And the, um, <clears throat> so that's, that's one way of, of um, slicing up the cake of experience. And the, the five, it's called the five candors. And then there's, there's another one, another system, which is the six senses. So you can start with the, the, the visual world, the images that we see. And normally, what, <clears throat> when, as we experience in the visual world, we, we kind of impute a substantiality into it. But if we actually look at the phenomena of, of what we're experiencing in the visual world, what we're experiencing is through awareness directly is images, images, three-dimensional images, but images hanging in the, in the space of awareness. And the same way that, uh, like a photograph, we know that a photograph is just an image. You turn it sideways, it, it disappears. Or those old reel-to-reel -reel movies. If you look at the reel, it's just a collection of images, and turn it sideways, it disappears. And in the same way, the, the, the <coughs> what we're experiencing, the, we're not directly knowing that the solidity and substantiality of some external world. What we directly know for ourselves is, is these kind of insubstantial images hanging in the space of awareness. That's what we we really know for sure. You know. And then if we turn our attention around 180 degrees and look into the person that we think is in there do, doing the seeing, if we, uh, or in, in a way you can't really do that, can you? The, the eyeball can never really see itself without a mirror. The eyeball can't see itself. And the uh, awareness, the, the eye, the ego can't really turn around and see itself. But you can, as it were, fall back. It can fall back into awareness, or you can, like the arrow of attention, rather than looking at the the front end, the pointy end, you can kind of look at the the other end. You can allow your attention to fall back into awareness and see for yourself. Well, is, is this me that I think this self, this substantial, stable me? Is that is that there? What's actually there? And then when we do that, allow attention to fall back then there's a kind of wide open space. There's a, the, uh, there's a kind of a, like a no thing. It's like the things, the things that we see with our eyes, they're all things out there. And then you, you, can, you can count them, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And the, um, you can't have numbers without zero. You can't have one without a zero. And the, uh, when we turn our attention around, what we see is a, is a, is a, is a no thing. Or well, things are out there, and the no thing, the space, Zero is is what's what's inside, and if there actually was a you know a little, a little me, some homunculus with a steering wheel in there doing everything, then we wouldn't be able to see out. There has to be a space for us to see out, for experience to work, for, for consciousness to work. There has to be a wide open space. If for numbers to work, there has to be zero. For consciousness to work, that has to be this kind of a silent knowing space. And we can do that with all, all the different senses, the sound, smell, taste, touch, the body, 
that's <coughs> quite useful because when we're meditating, that's the sense that we're in touch with anyway. The feeling of the sense of the body, physical sensations of breathing. We can feel into those and see how, how they're moving and changing, insubstantial, hollow, empty, and then we can, we can turn the hour of attention around and, and look at this, the one who feels, the one who senses, and uh, see that there's no little figure in there, no little me in there, there's just a wide open space. Thinking, we can, we can do the same with thinking. And the thing with thinking is, it, it's, it's for most people, it's quite difficult to catch a thought, isn't it? It goes so quickly, it's quite difficult to, to, to sort of study thinking because it, uh, it's often so quick. For most people, some people can. But. So what you can do is you can consciously think a thought like, I am a human being. And notice the silence at the end of that thought. Notice the silence at the beginning of the thought. Notice the silence in between each word. I am a human being. And see how that's... A, it's a process, it isn't, it isn't like a, a thing. It's a process happening within the mind, within awareness. It's a kind of insubstantial, moving, changing process. It's, and then we can look for the, the thinker. See, we, we thinker which we very strongly identify with, me and my ideas and opinions, and this thinker. And in meditation, when the mind's quiet, we can, we can actually, okay, we'll challenge that perception, look in there and see. If you can find this thinker, you know, can you find the thinker? And you can ask yourself the question, like, who am I? But in some ways, that, that prejudges the situation, doesn't it? Because the question, who am I, presumes that there's a person in there. Or you, you can say, what am I? But even that prejudges the situation because that, that almost presumes that there's a thing in there. So, in, in, what we can do is we can look at our experience, you know, when we're thinking. We're thinking we can look at the thoughts and then turn the, the hour of attention around metaphorically and look at the, the, the space where we presume this thinker to be, see what's there, see this wide open space of knowing, you know, experience it for ourselves. Well, we say experience it, but in a way it's what's doing the experience where we're no, rather than noticing an experience. We're noticing a kind of non-experience. We're noticing what's doing the experience, what's receiving the experience. So in the Buddha's teaching, there's this um, invitation to look for ourselves. He gives us a path. He gives us a way to calm down the, the busy mind, calm down the, the sort of overactive mind, so that then we have a, a workshop <coughs> within which we can start to examine our, our experience, ponder, consider our experience, investigate it, and then see for ourselves what's going on, see for ourselves well, what's the nature of this sense of self that we have, what's, what's actually the nature of that, what's the nature of this world that, that we're living in, really for ourselves, yeah, see for ourselves what's, what's actually happening. And then bit by bit, if, if, if we, we do this, becomes part of our lifestyle to continually investigate, look into our experience, look into this sense of self that we create, look into the, the, the experience of the world. Bit by bit, we can, we can start to discover 
a different kind of peace. There's a peace that comes with meditation, when, when we calm down, put our attention on a neutral feeling, the mind settles, calms. There's that kind of peace. And then there's the peace that comes from beginning to get life in, into a, a right perspective, start to get a correct perspective on what's happening, to actually see clearly what's going on in our lives. And, and we start to experience a sort of deeper and deeper levels of uh, peacefulness and, and contentment. So I'd like to offer those words for your consideration tonight. <laughs>